This episode contains mentions of sexual abuse, substance abuse, and grooming. Listener discretion is advised. We are not licensed professionals or therapists, and we are not attempting to diagnose, treat, prevent, or cure. This podcast is strictly our experiences and opinions only. Welcome to the Phoenix Rising Podcast. I am here with Austin. Austin and I have known each other... What? Two years? Two? Three? Three? Almost three, I think. Feels yeah. like longer, but... It does feel like longer. <laughs> but, uh, just a few years. As I'll ask you, anything from your childhood or support system background as a child or anything growing up, any of this play a part in the start of your story in any way? <clears throat> um, so growing up, did it play in a part play a part into um the chaos that yes. <laughs> aspired is that the right word um definitely did i mean i mean it's our life right so everything kind of plays a part everything's kind of webbed and connected and um but i grew up in utah <coughs> and grew up in a very mormon very lds family and my support system was great you know, I've done a lot of therapy and, and kind of going back into my, my history and, and wondering where things kind of spiraled out of control. And I really did have have a great support system. Um, I had family that loved me, and uh, I, I was adopted at birth. I was adopted into this family, and I was born during the apartheid. And um, race was never a, a thought in my head growing up, but once I got a little bit older to realize like hey my like my skin color is different than yours my friends uh, all their skin colors match right so mm-hmm. I think that's kind of where I started to get this idea that I I was different or I was other than so it was nothing with like my, my support structure that really caused caused anything uh, negative <sighs> negative anything growing up as a, as a child I think once I once I got a little bit older into my teenage years or preteens, when my belief systems didn't match my family's, I think that's really where where things where I found a lot of trouble in my heart. I guess I know that my dad was a bishop for you know six years. He worked for the church for fifty. He retired from the church. He was President Benson's secretary, um, and. I was I was raised like it was really important and, and really exciting that I was blessed by a prophet like my baby blessing was by President Benson and it was a big deal and it was mentioned a lot and I'd go on a mission and, and had these expectations that I needed to live up to right and and being the bishop's son at, at, at I don't I don't know when it started maybe like thirteen maybe I had to live up to those standards in, in, in the church and um, in my community and in my family. And I didn't feel like I met that. I think, I don't know when I could say that I knew that knew that I was gay. Um, but that is definitely, a, obviously, a huge, a huge deal in a Mormon family, in a traditional Mormon family. My parents have never had a gay friend. They grew up in Idaho in a small town. And they met at BYU. And my family's pretty traditional, you know, LDS family. My brother and my sister have families. And I had to explore what that meant alone and 
that's where my support, I guess that's where my support system fell out. Like I didn't have one, I didn't have a support system <coughs> at home to talk about that or to explore those feelings or to know what those are. And I remember we were kneeling down at prayer and this was really young. This was really young. I think I was like, it was before we moved here to this house. So um, it, I, ha I, I think I was like fourth grade, fifth grade, pretty young. And I, um, and I, we were kneeling down at prayer and I stopped the prayer and asked what kids, I think kids in school were calling me that, or it got brought up. And I remember it was such a big deal. Like it was such a big deal. And my mom had to explain it's when two women love each other, two men love each other. And it's just, that was kind of it. It was kind of awkward and didn't think too much of it. Right. Um, but obviously it was enough for me to remember now, like I remember that experience, but I don't think I really identified it as that because I didn't really know, understand. Well, you don't understand it as a kid, but growing up when I realized I was, I didn't have that support system anymore. So I started kind of coming out to some friends in, in the community and I quickly learned that it wasn't safe. Um, I was outed to the seminary teacher. I was, members of the church were meeting with my dad because their, their kids were telling them that I'm gay and it became an issue, I think, Looking back at it, my dad was very, very caring and very understand, not under. I wouldn't say go that far, mm -hmm. but like he, in, in his own way, right? Like he doesn't, hasn't been exposed to this, this element in his life. So he did have conversations with me and I, and I didn't, didn't feel safe opening up about that. And I still um, was just kind of trying to figure out my place. And that's kind of where, that that's really where my problem began, be started, was I, chat rooms became kind of my way out. And Messenger, MSN Messenger and AOL and Yahoo, and, and there was all these chat rooms that you can get into. And um, I, I learned all these adult things from this, right? And <clears throat> things that I probably <laughs> shouldn't have as a kid known at the time. And, and for me, like being so religious and, and then, jumping into such an adult atmosphere was mm -hmm. very overwhelming. And I remember one experience, I got laughed out of a chat room. Like I was just like, people were like just roasting me back mm -hmm. and back and forth. And um, so I opted out, but then I ended up having some, some really meaningful conversations and meaningful relationships. And I, as, as you can as a preteen, right. But I was 14 years old and I, connected with a man named Adam and he lived not too far away from me about 15 minutes away and that person became down the road he became my boyfriend but he also became somebody that I can confide in and talk to and that's where I learned the phrase that I would hear later many times down the road is that age is just a number um, and it doesn't matter yet these adults in my life We'll, we'll have a problem with this age gap is he was in his 40s, but it didn't really matter. And at this point, a lot of things transpired in the time that I had talked to him because I don't think I met him till I was 15. So it's been about, you know, give six months to a year of us chatting online. And a lot of things transpired. And, and this person was somebody that I was able to reach out to when I didn't agree with my parents. My parents made me upset, and then I would go to this person. And in, in a way, 
obviously there's there's a lot of things that you know parents religious or not like whatever like they you're being raised by somebody and they need to protect you from things they need to teach you things they need to ground you maybe they need to give you consequences i guess whatever those look like for you yet i'm having this adult to go back to telling me that these people are messed up for you know not understanding me and that he understands me and that i'm older than my age and so then i started to not feel like because it, my community didn't i didn't connect with my community the kids i connected with this older man mm-hmm. so i believed him i'm like i am older than my age so i became almost like disconnected without knowing it was happening but like i didn't feel like i fit in with these kids and I didn't need to connect with them as much anymore because I had him. Yeah, that's kind of how how that grooming and abuse started because eventually I ended up going to his house and really confused why I'm crawling through his window, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I just, I mean, he just told me his brother and sister live in the house and they're asleep and that was it. But every time I would go over, I'd jump through the, the window well and then crawl through the window and we'd hang out and we kind of fill in the blanks there a lot of mm-hmm. <laughs> um, things happen that shouldn't have nothing of it was violent it was very caring and very gentle and very on some level it was consensual like I I you know I did I I did feel like I I wanted to be there I, I wanted to I wanted to be around this person and I wanted to fit into this gay community that at this point my community members and my family I remember my my mom told me that the gay community is just really sex and drugs and so when sex came around I'm like well I gotta I gotta know because that's what this was and then when drugs came around wasn't surprised because that's what the gay community was and Mm -hmm. I you know I just painted this picture that um and, and then trying to trying to live inside that picture of what I believed I was supposed to be and what it was supposed to be and, and whatever, but that kind of really is like the the heart of all of my trauma. Like that's like the heartbeat of it is that man. So ultimately, at this point and this experience of what you've had with this man at this age, is this part of what led to your choice of substance abuse? Okay. It's hard to talk about this stuff. I it know. Is. You, it's have hard. To, you have to relive <laughs> it, and you, you have to go back. And going back is never easy because you've gone through a lot of therapy. You've gone through a lot of healing. Going back is never easy. Yeah, it is. And and it, he, it, he, he didn't introduce me to any substances, uh, maybe some alcohol, maybe. Um, but, no, substance abuse came a little later. I, I was, um, I guess I was still dating him on and off. Like, I really, like he disappeared when I like freaked out um, and said I was going to tell people and kind of, I think I started to figure out that this wasn't right um, somewhere in my being. I didn't really understand it mentally, but like I knew it was not, you know, it just wasn't correct. But um, no, I I started seeing other older men and I I couldn't, I tried to date, try to meet people my own age, but um, it was hard. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know how to meet people and, the community centers weren't, I didn't connect with people my age. I really didn't believe that. I really believed I only connected with older men and that they made me feel great. They made me feel validated. They made me feel like I was the number one thing. Of course they would. Like they made me feel like age wasn't a number and that um, any of my problems were valid and like they would co-sign on all my bullshit. Like they would co-sign on 
the stuff that wasn't true and like just just gave me this false sense of like self and being and and um so I started dating all these older older people and getting caught up in this abuse and this abuse and then finding somebody else and um and then when drugs came around I had already done them one time I had, I had done actually had a friend come into town to our old like old childhood friend that moved out of town she came back and offered me meth and that was the first drug I had ever done I'd smoked weed but the first hard substance I had done and I remember doing lines and not feeling like I was high and um, I ended up connecting with her and talking about so many things and then I had cheer practice that day um, I had been up all night, 24 hours, but I didn't feel any of the drugs. <laughs> like I just you were just up all night. You had up all, all night. Energy. Didn't eat anything. Like nothing. Like sh- she tried to force me to eat, and I just wanted to talk and write letters to her and hand it to her. It was really <laughs> weird. So um, I went to cheer practice and started coming down. Didn't know that's what it was, but um, I started sh- just vibrating and and um, just started bawling. And I told my my captain, I'm like, I can't cheer today. Like I. I do not feel very good. And I don't feel like I can spot you. Like, I don't want to throw you up in the air, you know? And so I remember the bell ringing, and I was still walking out from the, the gymnasium, and, like, just the slowest steps, and I'm just, like, bawling my head off. Kids are going to sc- – I, I don't think I, like, was in the, my own little bubble. I don't, didn't, don't remember anybody talking to me until a counselor came up to me after everybody was in school and, were, and pulled me into their office. And it was like a four or five hour session in that office where I cried. My parents got called. My parents got brought to the school at the end. I came out. I told, yeah, I told them all these things. And I'm like, I don't want to be in the church. Like, I don't don't feel like comfortable there. I'm like, I'm I'm gay. And, and I don't know what that means for us, but like, that's, that's, is what it is. And I don't want to grow up and live like some people that I've been watching in the church and like, they grow up and they get married and have kids and, and then they leave their families. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to play that game. I, I want to be myself. And, you know, I'm watching things like Degrassi where like people are coming out and, and I kind of found my truth through that show is like, on how to do that, mm-hmm. you know? So I finally got the courage from the substance. So after I had done that, I'm like, I knew that I would do it again because it helped me. Like I genuinely thought this drug had helped me. And so when it was brought up again after meeting people online unsafely, that's really where my substance abuse, like, really kicked. I think the next time I tried meth, I was up for a week and a half. I didn't sleep, and I was about 130 130 pounds. And I started stripping in front of a mirror, talking to myself, and that's when my parents wanted me to... (laughs) Go get some help. help. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so I did. It lasted about a week before I disappeared um, again. And that kept repeating. Like I kept, you know, when I used, I couldn't stop. Like I could not stop. I would want to stay up as long as I could. If I fell asleep, I'd get mad because that meant I was coming down. And then I would come down and I would go back to treatment. Use, come back, back to treatment. And that was just, it ended up being my cycle until... I was 21. How many years did that go on? So, five. Five five years. years. Yeah, five years. At this point, I was shooting it up. 
really started to um, really want, I really wanted to get the help because the come downs were just like devastating. I couldn't move and I was just so sad and, and hurt and like didn't feel like I belonged anywhere and didn't know what I had done with my life and just like, who am I? You know, I didn't know who I was and I didn't know, I didn't know, I didn't know if I wanted to be sober. I just knew I didn't want to feel the come down. <laughs> but I, I, um, I started, legal ha- stuff started happening. I started stealing things and I started, yeah, I started stealing things and robbing my family. Really, I mean, I was numb at the time doing it, but then afterwards it's just like, what have I done? Right? Like the, it, it almost is like a possession. And so I started to want to get some help. I got locked up for quite some time, uh, 11 months. And um, I had been in, in and out of jail plenty of times prior to that. And looking back on it now, I'm like, why didn't they give me rehab? Like, why didn't they court order rehab for me? You know, right. it really makes me frustrated because I'm, uh, even even though it, it doesn't, give the best as good of results as, as wanting to do it yourself like why was I only like put in for 30 days and then sent out like why why keep doing that to me like why not say hey this person needs help but I, I think the system's kind of getting a little bit better right now but I do look back and I'm like I wish that I was offered help instead of my family paying out of pocket for some of these treatment centers because they wanted to get the best for me I think I, I really don't know the financial stuff um, from their end but I do believe that where I went was, it was um, kind of designed for me. It was a lot of ther- therapists that I went to different um, therapists and they kind of created this this rehab, this treatment for me. And um, it wasn't until I was sitting in front of one of them, her name was Faith, and she was a new therapist. She was young and she had short red hair. So I, w- I was sitting in front of her and we were talking about, we had taught, been talking about Adam a lot, and I always had referenced that he was my boyfriend, and she had decided to do something different that day, and she wanted to try not calling him my boyfriend, and I asked her why. Why, why not? Just call him Adam? She's like, he wasn't your boyfriend. And I didn't understand what she was trying to say. And that is when she explained to me that he was my abuser. And I still didn't understand. It took me a long time to figure it out. Um, and and it t- I think, I think um, it just hit me in the face because I had always referenced him as my boyfriend. I never realized I, never realized I was being abused or looked at it that way. Um, she had to explain to me that um, you're, you were 14 years old and he was in his 40, like you're 23 now. I was about 23 at the time. Mm -hmm. You're 23 now. And can you imagine dating a 15 year old or 14 year old? And then like my head started kind of like spinning. Right. And I'm like, no, it's disgusting. Can you imagine a 40 year old? I I think I freaked out. I think I freaked out. And um, I remember I remember going outside into the back of their 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 little smoking area and uh, had a 
few cigarettes. <laughs> um, and then I called someone and had him pick me up. And I didn't go back to rehab. Um, and I ended up using for the next year. And that's also the year that uh, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't stop. Like, I could not stop. It's also the year that I contracted HIV. And I knew it. And I did it. Um, because I, I grabbed a needle that I knew this person had HIV. And he had warned it warned to me that you know I needed to clean it out properly but I just cleaned it out with water I didn't care at that point to be honest like looking back on it too like I almost wanted to at that moment like it was almost punishment and I was like mad at myself I hated myself and I deserved this and it was shortly after that after I got diagnosed I I wanted to get help like I really wanted to get help I um going back to my roots, like I, I remember kneeling down um, outside in a snowstorm and praying that I would, that somebody would help me. I didn't want to get help. I needed help. And I got arrested that night. And the night you really realized you needed the help I got on it. your own. Yeah. You got arrested. I got arrested. They let me out. Um, it's just kind of like a book and release situation. Um, and I was able to find myself up to rehab. Um, it wasn't a tr traditional rehab. It was an all 12-step based. Um, so it was all ran by 12 steps, all by AA. Um, I ended up staying clean um, for about six years. Six years for meth and five and a half years of um, from alcohol. And it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, so it was, it, it was useful and it helped me. I, I was able to clear my side of the street, the steps, um, changed my life and it changed it, it got me able to like learn what spirituality was for me and I was so I was so so far away from from Mormon and being LDS and praying and like doing all that stuff that I had to find something that worked for me I had to find something different and um, I found I found one night that dancing really got me connected to like my higher self like my higher being and um, I had this feeling that spirit or God or the universe was like, well, this is how you pray, you know, and, and I became this weirdo that would take the headset out and I'd go out in the pasture at this place, it's called Valley Camp, I'd go out and dance in the middle of nowhere and, and with my music and I'd be praying all the time and then everything became a prayer and then everything became spiritual and it was just it was such a powerful experience and I had this one one moment where um, I it was in the snow and there was this path that that was um, I was walking, um, listening to my music and at this point I I I had um, I had not wanted to take medication for HIV I wanted it to kill me. Um, Still at this point. Yeah, I I I, I wanted to um, better my life so my parents. Um, so I can clean up my, my life so my family would be happy when I died. And then I just wanted to go. I just didn't want to do it. And so I thought, what a kind of a blessing. Like, I can just let this kill me. I don't have to do it myself. And I remember walking up to this tree and sitting down and uh, listening to this song. And then I had this, like, overwhelming feeling of that to go and see if you're okay. Like, you need to go back and get your blood work done and see if you're okay. Because I want, you, you have so much to teach other people. You have so much to give to the world. 
whatever that is, like you, I decided to go on meds. Later, I found out that the ashes of a man that was very well known in that community um, had died of HIV, and they had put his ashes in that tree. And and his name was Lewis. So he's an amazing guy to a lot of people. I'd heard his name a bunch. I just didn't know. I didn't know. And it was just so cool to learn. It's just kind of um, uh, like, how, how do you have doubt of in something more when mm-hmm. that stuff happens, you know? And uh, that kept me clean for a while. And um, I, I stayed pretty true to, to, to staying, c- continuing going to meetings and taking care of myself. And, and um, I ended up being, uh, I ended up getting married, um, had uh, my own company in, in Vegas and, and in Dallas. Uh, it was a, a sales company. It was kind of wild. And um, I started to put, I don't know, I think part of it was like me trying to prove myself all the time because I, I had come into the workforce with felonies and, and all this stuff. And I found this company that was like, we were working like 70, 80 hours a week. We were working a lot. And I had to, I, they took a chance on me and I, I just, I felt like I owed them and I felt like I had to prove everybody and my parents and family and all my successful, you know, family members, like I can be successful too and like I've made it and like doing all this stuff and like I've lost myself, you know, and didn't even know who I was anymore. I became this company. I became, um, books I was reading and the people trying to be everybody else and, and that um, in, in this business and um, stopped doing the little things that were keeping me spiritually and, and mentally uh, okay and uh, when I learned that my husband wanted to get a divorce um, I didn't have the structure that I did before and I just relapsed I went out and um, relapsed again and uh, ended up in the same situation really quick and within probably a few months I came back to Utah broken like I had been raped and I had pulled a body out of a hotel room that same day I had so much anxiety that I was just panicking walking. I didn't know where I was walking to, but like I'd panic to the point where I'd like just pass out and people would keep waking me up on the ground and that went on for probably like 24 hours until I connected with somebody and I ended up back in Utah and got back into a treatment center and um, that's where I feel like I feel like this time in recovery, like this time that I'm in now, I'm almost five years five years in recovery again and this time in recovery was um has been the most powerful for me um and i think the 12 steps had its place for sure for my life and it, and it really it really doesn't they have a, an amazing structure amazing community and it gives you everything you really need in your life right but like the trauma that i had experienced in the past I really needed that clinical help and I hadn't gone back since that since faith and since I learned that I was being abused right so I really um after this this rape happened this last time it just reopened all these experiences that I had had as a child and I needed 
I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to handle it. Like it was just like, just dumped in my lap. And I don't know, like I didn't deal with that in AA. Like I don't know how to deal with PTSD. Like I couldn't talk, people couldn't talk about sexual abuse and I'd black out in, in, in treatment. Like I would black out, my feet would start kicking the guy off of me. That And um, sometimes I was aware that I was still where I was. Um, sometimes I wasn't, like I was back in that room. and. Um, a lot of clinical help to to address that to remember what had happened completely because I was so drugged up and and since then um, I've been able to really process all of that and understand it a little bit better and know how it affected me I think that's the most important for me is like know how it affected me so that way I know know how I'm be aware of like why I react to things. And and I think right now, in this present moment in time, the thing that I'm learning is, because I've been, recently I've been really wanting to fix it. Like I've been really on this fix it mode. Like I need to get in there and like go back to that memory and like I really need to like fix it because this happened to me and it's affecting my, my I'm engaged and it's a, it affects our relationship with, with these stu- this stuff. And I've just, I've, I've really been like going hard and like doing the work and like really wanting to work on myself. And then I'm just realizing this l- last session experience I had with myself. And um, I'm realizing that it, it happened and it's not gonna go away. Like I'm not ever gonna not live that again. Like I'm, or I'm never going to delete that from my memory. Like reliving it over and over again doesn't like process it and like shove it under a rug like it doesn't you don't get finished with a rape like you don't it's not just over and I think that's the hardest thing for me to like to grasp um and I'm, I'm learning how to do that like okay well this is the this is the uh, the trauma right and it's like learning how to work around live around that like Knowing that's there, it's not gonna go away. It's not gonna go away. It's Ever. there, but I can create more of these experiences that that, and I don't have to revisit this to be all over here. But no. like when I do come back here and I do have something that triggers in a moment or an emotion, or I'm like, oh hi, you know that's that's where you, that's why that's happening, mm-hmm. and and address it that way instead of um, instead of try to like want resolve how I am since that incident like it is what it is like it happened and I'm I'm um, currently still I mean five years later I've been you know it's not really a long time between that experience but I think that um, I've learned a lot and I've gotten a lot more awareness of how to push forward from here I mean you've done a lot of healing even just you saying it, but like me personally knowing you, you, s- you continue to heal even now. Like yeah. it's, it's a lifelong thing. You're going to have to always, the addiction's always going to be there. Right. Right. And, and you could, you could relapse. You could not. Like it's always there. But continuing to go to the therapy and to go in places 
where you feel good, where you feel your higher self, where you feel spiritually connected, those are the steps that keep you going to continue that sobriety. And that's what I see you doing now. Right. And so what advice, if there's anyone listening that's maybe struggling like you were or, mm-hmm. or in the thick of it, that's struggling with drug abuse, what could you say to them as far as if they're at a point where they do want help? Because I know resources are hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've watched my husband struggle. It's not easy to, d- it's expensive to mm-hmm. go to rehab yeah. and you still have to work and you still have to live. Yeah. And so, I mean, what advice would you give someone that's wanting the help? Like what's the best way that they can start? I think, um, there's so many different ways to recover. Like there's so many different ways. And that's the biggest thing that I learned in this, this last um, stint in recovery is that there's so many different kinds of ways to recover. And I was in initially when I, my first stint, like I was only 12 steps. That was it. People came in and I met and they were in therapy and I was like, yeah, but you need the 12 steps. You have to have it. Like you can do therapy. Sure. Great. Go do it. But there 12 steps, you have to be here. Right. It was almost culty. Um, uh, my mindset was kind of culty, right? So like, it was like, this is the only way to recover. And I think that, um, people get caught up in that too. Like there's only one way to do something and and there's, uh, and there's not, there's so many different ways and there's so many different, uh, if one thing doesn't work, like jump into another one. Um, there, there's so many cool programs here in Salt Lake and I'm learning in Vegas, living there, like so many different avenues you can go and um one huge thing for me um was kind of stepping out of that 12 step i would be i would be i guess you call me you would call me cali sober what's cali sober so cali sober is when you use plant medicines okay and you're still in recovery right so um and one and 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 that works for me but it's, but it's not going to work for everybody, right? right? And that's I don't really talk about that very much because I don't want people that do know that I'm in recovery to think, oh, I can just go smoke pot. Like, mm-hmm. that's not how that happened, right? Like, I um, tried seven different medications. They weren't working. I constantly have, since that first time in recovery, always think about suicide. Like, I always, it always had come up. Like, even then, like, continuously, I would stop taking my meds because I'm like, I'm just done. I've been over it and just that this this suicidal ideation came around when the drugs weren't right um Mm -hmm. it numbed me like if i thought about that my problems didn't worry because i was gonna die so it just became like my go-to but like um and and cannabis started helping me and um i started getting mad at the 12 steps and um because i'm like well i'm not i didn't go do meth right um because it was the story i was telling myself i was trying to use this to heal so when i was off the meds i would start going into a panic and didn't want to take any other, you know, mood stabilizers or anything like that. So I started using that. Then I learned that psilocybin and mushrooms could, could help these, these thoughts and did my research and had a session. And it was the most amazing thing that I had ever done in my life, which again, made me mad at the 12 steps because I had, I had been told that that was the only way to do recovery. Yet I found something in this, this experience that I don't believe it would have taken a long time to figure out mm-hmm. right if i if i hadn't had this experience so i think that every 
every person has their own story and every person has their own needs and like to to search it out like do some research find find what's going to work for you there's things like obviously the 12 steps in AA there's PIR which is psychedelics and recovery there's what's it called refuge recovery which is more of a buddhist i've never done that before i've wanted to but um there's that there's you know clinical and in, in groups and there's um just so many different like groups out there that create the community because i think in the end like it's like having a healing community like that's so important because you need to be able to talk about things with people that are not invested in your own life you need to talk to people that are not like intimate in your life you need to talk to people that are outside your personal circle that they can give an outside perspective on things because they're gonna they just see you different they don't see Mm -hmm. you they don't what they tell you to do they're not invested in the outcome right so like um they can give they can give it to you they can give you real pure raw honesty whether you take it or leave it like you can take take it or leave it right but like they don't have they're not invested in the path that you take in your life right so i think having that kind of community that does care about you and that will listen um to giving an outside perspective is really important so finding that finding where you fit in whether it be like a drum circle or um dancing dancing a dance group a church um, I know a lot of people find it there. Um, I know a lot of people find, um, love the 12 steps and I love the 12 steps. I, I do, but I don't go anymore because <laughs> <laughs> I found this other thing that that's just connect. I connect with more and I connect in my soul and, and, um, I've healed with, and, um, it's just where I'm at now. Who knows where I'll be tomorrow. Right. Or mm-hmm. in a couple months or, um, it can evolve but i think it's just trusting your gut that's the gut that's the um we're trusting trusting yourself yeah just trusting yourself i mean i i say that and then i like take it back because i'm like you're on drugs so maybe you shouldn't trust yeah, maybe yourself. you shouldn't trust yourself <laughs> <laughs> but, when you're, but when you're in a healing process right you can trust yourself to know what is going to work for you right and As find and find the people that you trust yeah, and people that are giving you that advice or giving you ways to heal that have had experience with it. Right. Connecting with others that have been through it, mm-hmm. I think, would be really important. Yeah. Because, like you said, I mean, it's hard with, with family or even close friends because they want they want to fix it. They want right. to fix you. Mm-hmm. But you have to you have to want the help. And then you have to discover what that help is. Exactly. So amazing. I'm glad you named all those ways that you could get support and help. Because a lot of that I had never heard of. And I know that's going to help a lot of people realize it's not just the 12 step. Right. Because that's kind of all that's talked about. Yeah. There's so much more out there that that they can use to heal and get better. And I'm happy that it's like changed i'm sure it hasn't always been that way yeah and i think it's like i think i mean before like alcoholism like they give you a lobotomy like they just put a nail in 
like knocked your brain, right? Because they thought you were crazy. They yeah. put you in a crazy house. So like they, they didn't they had no idea how to treat that. Right. They just thought you were nuts. So like and, and AA, the twelve steps, really like changed that. And they got this doctor's doctor to, to form an opinion and and create this this put it into a spotlight where people started actually healing from alcoholism and, and drug abuse and like that's it was huge, right? And it's still like it's moved mountains, right? And now we're learning that that's not the only way people are learning that. And I think that um, it will continue to grow. I think more mm-hmm. stuff will come out and more things will will um, transpire because of that. And um, I'm excited for that. Me too. Yeah. You've been on an amazing, incredible healing journey. And you're one of the strongest people I know. And I'm grateful that you sat down with me and you... <laughs> Had to relive some of that because <laughs> it it's it's hard to go back, yeah. but it's also made you who you are. Exactly, and and will be able to help a lot of people. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you for having me. When I first met Austin, I was drawn to his contagious personality, his positivity, and his continuous effort to work hard try new things and never give up on himself. His healing journey has turned him into a strong example of what one can accomplish if you set your mind to it. I know it wasn't easy in moments in his interview I saw within him wrestle with the trauma he once lived, but he pushes through and he lets himself feel, and that to me shows so much courage and bravery. I leave with you a phoenix quote. The phoenix in times of doubt and confusion, it symbolizes strength transformation and renewal for only from the ashes of who we were we can rise up to become who we're to be if you'd like to be considered for the podcast or would like to share your insight email me at becky at the phoenix rising podcast.com stay up rising phoenixes you are loved the phoenix rising podcast is licensed and trademarked and can only be represented